Past, Present, Future Live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we bring you an interview with Erica Wennerstrom. She's best known for her work with Heartless Bastards, which she started in Cincinnati in 2003. We talked about a fortuitous show in Akron, where Patrick Carney of the Black Keys was one of just a handful of people who showed up for the concert. Shortly after, she'd be signed to Fat Possum, the Black Keys label, which put out Heartless Bastards' first few records. Erica also talks about her spiritual and therapeutic journey to the Peruvian Amazon, her experience of making records for over 20 years as a band leader, and what it felt like to put out her first solo album, Sweet Unknown. After the interview, you'll hear Erica perform Could Be Happy, Dust, and Letting Go. And as always, there's a Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes. If you like what you hear on Past, Present, Future Live, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show, and we appreciate you helping to spread the word. Now here's my interview with Erica Wennestrom. All right, I'm here with Erica. Hi, Erica. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. Well, we have a lot to talk about, and I want to dig into a bunch of your career, but I have to start by going all the way back and asking you if you have a first musical memory. Oh, gosh. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Anything early? I remember when I was young, my parents would have these sort of potlucks. We called them garden parties, but we really just people brought a bunch of food. My mom made a bunch of food and, and put, you know, tables out on the porch and stuff. But my mom worked at the university at Wright State University in, in Dayton. And um, some of the uh, her fellow professors were like uh, jazz musicians. And uh, another family friend, you know, that band, the Ohio Players. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. uh, Satch uh, played trumpet and uh, they would just jam uh, around the house. And it was jazz music, but I do think that the, that was pretty inspiring as a little kid. Just kind of that energy of the live music exchange yeah. kind of running around the house. And yeah. You grew up in Dayton, right? Or outside of Dayton? Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm from Toledo, so I, I grew up in the in Ohio oh, okay. as well. But it's it's interesting because I wonder, like, were you surrounded by music, like, family-wise? Were, were your parents playing music? Were their records playing? Was it a theme in your life growing up? Well, my mom's a big fan of music. She loved sort of, like, like oldies, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, a lot of stuff like that that we really kind of jived together on, you know? And yeah. When I got a little older, she got into sort of some kind of modern jazz fusion I'm not quite as into, mm-hmm. you know, so, mm-hmm. but I do think a lot of her musical taste inspired me, the this sort of soul R&B sort mm-hmm. of aspect and, and some top 40 and stuff. But uh, my father, um, I think he'll appreciate some background noise, but like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I realize he's never really like 
kind of mention specific artists or anything. And he mm-hmm. literally used to have kind of like elevator music stations on in the car. And uh-huh. <laughs> at, at one point when I, I uh, was going through uh, some band changes, like when I, I split from relationship and moved from Cincinnati to Texas, like my dad mentioned Herb Alpert. And I was like, oh my God, is my dad like a fan of Herb Alpert? Am I discovering like... Uh-huh. A musician that he's finally like into and I saw so I was kind of inquiring and he's like oh no I just meant the Tijuana Brass had different musicians uh-huh. <laughs> you know over the years it wasn't always the same people and he was just sort of telling me that to like comfort me and going through some changes got so, it got it yeah uh, my, my aunt though she's uh huge into Bob Dylan and Neil Young lyrics and stuff. She used to like talk to me and analyze Bob Dylan lyrics mm. when I'm like five years old in the car. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. So I definitely think that also was my aunt and my mom kind of a huge influence. Yeah, that's cool. And I read I read that you like as a toddler, you said that you were going to be a singer or you thought you wanted to be a singer. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Since I was old enough to think about doing any of that. And why do you think you felt that like so early? I'm really not sure. I mean, I wonder if there was just something within me that always kind of knew or something, but yeah. uh, I'm not from like my family aren't musicians. Yeah, I don't know. I just yeah. it was always That's interesting. I I wonder if like was it the performance part? Cuz I feel like kids a lot of kids are just like into acting or watching videos or watching musicals or watching movies and kind of acting. But it sounds like you were like attracted to actually singing. Yeah, it's funny. I always wanted to be a singer, but I never sang around anybody. Hmm. Like, uh, and I would tell my family that's what I was going to do. And I think some of like we're just kind of surprised because I think they would imagine if this is what I want to do and it's sort of, uh, a field where you have to be out in the open kind of more. I'm, I'm all, I'm very introverted mm-hmm. and uh, it's all, it was a big challenge sort of getting started, sort of feeling confident. It's, it's more about, I think the, the writing of the songs and the singing and the sort of self-expression, but mm-hmm. I am not uh, extroverted in the slightest. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you weren't in a hurry to get out and perform in front of people. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there was a point where I was like, can I sing? (laughs) Is this just something that I want to do? But I, we had this greenhouse uh, growing up though. And the the way the glass, the vocals reflect upon the glass kind of sounds like when uh, you're in like a big church or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would come home from school before anybody got home and I would just sing in there and try to write songs and stuff. I kind of felt I could sing. But, you know, sometimes it's you don't know if it's going to be anybody else's cup of tea, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. (laughs) When you were growing up, did you discover any albums like, I don't know, in your teenage years or beyond that, like really caught your attention musically where you were like, oh, this is something that I really identify with? You know, I think. I grew up on sort of soul and some top 40 stuff, a lot of R&B and junior high and stuff. But I really kind of became a little more aware of rock and roll mm-hmm. when I was in high school. And uh, I and when I got old enough to drive and I met some friends that were going to kind of like DIY punk shows. And I think 
uh, that was really inspiring, kind of seeing like people like my age or a few years older kind of doing, starting bands and doing things. And I think the, the breeders were from my hometown too. And in high school, they had like a nu- the number one song mm-hmm, at, mm-hmm. at one point. So uh, that gave me a lot of, you know, I think my perception when I was at that age was like you had to be in like New York or L.A. or some kind of major city to like do anything. But I think uh, and Guided by Voices, they were mm-hmm. really inspiring. What was this music scene like in Dayton? I mean, or around there? Was it, were there a lot of bands and a lot of, it sounds like there was a scene there. I don't know much about the scene. Yeah, there was a band, Brainiac, too, that was just starting to get really big. And um, there was a tragic car accident that kind of curtailed that. But uh, they were doing some opening for Beck and Nine Inch Nails. We're going to take them out and just mm-hmm. really huge stuff. What else was uh, guided by voices and mm-hmm. readers? Um, there was a lot of stuff going on back then. I think you moved early on, or maybe around twenty. You moved to Cincinnati and started playing in a band. Was that your first band, or had you had you played in bands up to that point? No, that what, yeah, I was. I guess I was about twenty. I uh, I I tried a band in high school. Me and a couple guys got together, but we just came up with one song, mm-hmm. and then we just played it over and over. And we we're always like, we need to write another song. <laughs> we never got anywhere. <laughs> and then I just started uh, trying to write like uh, my early adult, like eighteen or so. Like I was like, well, if this is what I'm going to do as a career, I'm I'm an adult now, and I better like get on it. But I I did uh, I got asked about playing bass in a group called uh, Sheezus mm-hmm. that we're starting out of out of Dayton. Uh, we were all girls at first, and yeah, and I was like, I've never played bass before. I don't know if I could do it. And she's like, I bet you, my friend Heather. She's like, I bet you, you could, you'd be fine. So I just <laughs> uh, I borrowed my boyfriend's bass uh at the time and and tried it out and i i was into it and they were into it so i just uh went and i got like a a bass the following week and and that was my first band i was in yeah. wow what what did you learn during that time like were you guys playing a bunch of gigs and writing songs together was it like uh was it a was it a good formative experience band wise for you yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a lot of fun and I had no idea what I was doing, you know, but mm-hmm. with some sort of like indie sort of punk influence, it's like, you don't really have to know <laughs> exactly what you're doing, you know, you can kind of figure it out as you go along. And yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about dynamics. That was another thing too, just with personalities and, you know, touring and, working with people and and writing and but ultimately i think i was putting so much energy into that and ultimately uh i wanted to do my own thing Mm -hmm. so i just decided to focus on that yeah yeah and then so that's how heartless bastards came came to be yeah i think maybe four or five months after i had left that group i recorded the first demos for for heartless bastards when you were recording those demos, do you remember like what you were trying to communicate sound wise? Like, did you know what you wanted to, what you wanted the band to sound like and what you wanted it to be? 
Well, you know, initially I had trouble because I was always so introverted. I don't think anybody took me very seriously on mm. like sort of leading a band. And um, so my boyfriend was like, well, why don't you just, you know, write a lot of the parts yourself on your eight track and, you know, work on it. And and then I, I did quite a bit, but I knew like I wasn't capable of playing certain parts and, and such. So I... Um, for the demos, I had a drummer play, Dave Colbin, that later joined the band and who was also in Cheezus with me. And then uh, uh, Jesse, who also later also joined the band. Uh, and Jesse played like three of the songs and I played bass with Dave on two of them. And and I did different layers and, and such. And I also had a guitarist, Ruben Glazier, play on a few songs. So I... Um, yeah, I just, it was kind of a recording project. It wasn't really a band initially. It worked pretty well though, right? You got it out there and did you immediately start playing gigs and did it kind of go from there? Because I know you ended up opening for the Black Keys and there's a whole story there with your first albums, but was it like you recorded the demos and started circulating them and then you you started playing? Um, well, I was a bartender and... Um, Man, I went through like three CD burners. I would like, <laughs> I burned hundreds of CDs probably. And I would just pass them out to anybody I thought might remotely be interested. I just gave them out for free. Nice. But I had like a really, really good response from it. And and like a couple of bars in town even like put it on the jukebox and was like getting played. And it made it like easier to find a band and have people take it me more seriously with it. So I uh, then I went to go form like a live band and and Dave started in the first uh, incarnation, but uh, uh, I think he like moved like a couple of months later or something. And I got this guy, Adam was playing bass. We only had done like, I don't know, five or six shows and things were kind of changing up. Like Adam, he worked at a bar and he like, switch from the Friday night shift to the Saturday. And I was like, well, I was like, if you work a day job and you get off at five and now you're working Saturday, I was like, we can never go anywhere out of town more mm -hmm. than like maybe two hours drive. And right. the thing about Cincinnati is you're like, you're five hours from Pittsburgh, you're five hours from Chicago, five hours from Detroit. Yeah. Five hours from Nashville. I mean, there's so many places to play in that sort of mm -hmm. area, but you kind of need a little time to get there. So Mike, my boyfriend uh, of a long time then um, played bass and then he he joined uh, because he was had been at every show and supportive. And I was like, yeah, we might as well just do this together. <laughs> <laughs> And what was the reception like when you went out on the road? Were people, were a lot of people coming to the gigs? I mean, we had a really good start in Cincinnati, but I think, um, you know, when, when it comes to going to, you know, some place I managed to book by myself somewhere, you know, like a three hour drive away with no previous following you know maybe yeah. we play for like five people or something and so <laughs> maybe we had a good response but there's just like a few people there or something. yeah yeah you know i always kind of looked at it like it was fun to play and, and and do it so it never felt like a, a waste of time 
Yeah, that makes sense. I think that the Black Keys connection came from one of those gigs that you played in Akron. Is that right? Yeah, well, actually, we had opened another thing I would do to initially sort of get build the following or reach people in Cincinnati was I just emailed the main club there. Like all the time I was always looking to see who was playing and if there was like an opening slot available and the Black Keys came and played the Cincinnati area and I got that gig. And then I ended up playing Akron. I mean, we had a really good response that night and then I played Akron like maybe three or four weeks later. And uh, it's funny, the uh, club owner Mm -hmm. was like, you know, there's nobody here. Uh, It's just kind of a lot of work to like sound check and set it all up. He's like, you know, I could just pay you to to be on your way. It's so, you know, I'm not going to like screw you out of any kind of guarantee, but uh, I can just, you know, yeah, why don't you don't have to bother? I think he kind of felt like he was doing us a favor, but I was kind of like, well, we did just get in a car and drive like four hours or however far away it was. And, And so I convinced him to go ahead and let us set up. And there was probably like five people there. But then partway through the set, Patrick Carney walks in and Mm -hmm. I recognized him from, you know, like a month before. And I don't know if he came there because he saw that we were playing or if that's just where he kind of hung, which Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. a little bit of both, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, after the set, we just hung out and had some pictures of beer and and I gave him the demo and yeah. And I, I heard that you you learned that their label had been trying to email you or had been emailing you. Is that right? Which seems like fortuitous that he told you that. Yeah. So the original, like I had this like thing that I put on the uh, the CD disc, you know, it talked about how <laughs> I, I think I said I was born to do this or so, I don't know. Uh-huh. It's just this... <laughs> It's, it's funny to look back and read. I wish I could kind of call it up right now, but um, but I had a number on there and then I moved. So it was a different number and apparently they had tried to call. Oh, I see. They had been trying to email, but I had never checked my junk box mm-hmm. on Hotmail in my life. I just, <laughs> or maybe it was like yeah. Roadrunner. I don't even remember what the email was back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who did? I, I mean, you never check your spam. Yeah, I guess they had been trying to email I didn't know. And and one night I came home from work because I bartended and Mike, that my boyfriend that was playing the band too, he had checked the email. Um, I guess maybe it was like a band email. And he just left a, a handwritten note on the dining room table when I came home and and, and it said, why, why didn't you tell me Fat Possum's been emailing? <laughs> and so I woke up the next morning and he was already at work and I called him and I was like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what yeah. you're talking about. And uh, yeah, so... It was going to the junk. And I think it was like, even as much as like they were saying, oh, this is our last, you know, attempt to reach out, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. And I know, so Fat Possum has put out albums by a bunch of great bands like Black Keys and, and many others. What do you think they saw in, in your demo that they liked? Like, what do you think you were doing differently that allowed you to kind of get the attention? I do think I have a unique voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, Although, you know, the recording quality could have been better. I think that they were strong demo songs. And although it's been such a huge process to learn how to record and do things, I think it'd be so fun to go back and like, 
I mean, I guess it would be looking backwards, but to like re-record my first album, I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) I had just kind of been learning what not to do since, uh, you know, 1977. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, lots of trial and error. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, I'm just not good at reading directions or anything in life. I just have to try everything and feel it out. And I make mistakes, but, you know, I learn a lot as I go along. But the other thing was my message in it, which is why it'd be sort of interesting to sort of, I wonder if I could find it and like read it, you know, but I had talked about, you know, like my goals, what I wanted to do. I said, I felt like I was kind of, uh, born to do this. I, I think I've literally said I've been wanting to do this since I was old enough to want to do anything. And uh, I gave a shout out to the musicians on it. And, you know, it said that I, my goals were to tour uh, and, and work hard as much as I could to sort of reach people with, with my music. And I, and I, I do think uh, aside from uh music, you want to have strong music on a label when you're putting it out. But I also think that um, there are a lot of talented folks where if there isn't the kind of ethic to get out there and really kind of push your music, you know, a a lot of the effort by the labels can kind of go by the wayside. Yeah, like somebody uh, loves writing music, but they're just not into touring or I mean, it's not an easy life, you know, so I think um, some of that was in my sort of statement inside the CD as well. And I think they kind of thought, well, we we hear some promise in this music and this person is like stating they they're they're ready to get out there. So, and then you guys did a national tour. I think you you went on tour with the Drive-By Truckers in 2004 and then put uh-huh. out your first album right after that. F- did that feel like you had achieved like what you were trying to do? I mean, being out on a national tour with a big act, it sounds like you would have been like, we, we made it. To be honest, um, you know, I'd always been wanting to go somewhere with, with this thing. and But when it came down to it, I didn't know much about recording and and different techniques to make a good record. And I, I didn't have a producer and, and just, you know, so many different things that it just felt like we flew through getting the album done. Uh, But at the end of the day, we only had so much budget. And I think the whole band felt very kind of unhappy with what it sounded like, how it Mm. came out. It was like what I felt was that I believed in the songs, but that I in no way knew how to go about capturing that vision at that point. And I would say that I've just finished like my seventh album. And and I would say on my sixth is when I finally... It's still the challenge and you learn that things, sometimes things aren't where you're trying to go, but maybe they come out even better or this or that. But it took me until my sixth to to really kind of grasp how best to make records kind of going forward. And I'm just so, took me a long time. <laughs> wow. But uh, it, I don't mean that there weren't... Uh, 
really I'm that I'm not proud of previous records. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. there's so many like moments. I think I, I I'm gonna guess a lot of artists would concur with this that sometimes like that that's the biggest challenge is trying to sort of uh, translate what's in your head and where you're trying to go with. Uh, and actually doing it, like achieving, mm. capturing somehow what's best in your head, you know? And um, and sometimes some songs you can really, you, you manage to get that. And uh, other ones, uh, maybe it's been a little trickier here or there. The other thing is too, that to me at this point in my career, like it's all about just making it the best I can be, best it can be, you know? So at this point, I don't care what the budget is. If I'm over budget, I'm just going to spend money out of my own pocket because mm-hmm. to me, then I can look back and have like no regret, you know, yeah, like, yeah. but it's taken years to sometimes even just be able to financially do that. Um, anyway, uh, as far as my first record to sort of jump back to that is that we just really thought that um, it was not going to go very well. But then it with the live show, the the response, like it was just like, oh wow, okay, cool. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that I think that kind of comes with also like we can be our worst critic, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so I also I don't want to be completely negative on it either, but I just mean that it's it's become a balance of learning how to not be my worst critic and gentle on myself and also recognize sometimes where what you might deem as a flaw is actually where the magic lies, you Mm. know, and Mm -hmm. like my voice makes a weird quirky thing in that moment and I want to delete it. And somebody else is like, that's special, you know? And Mm -hmm. so it, it just, it's always been one foot in front of the other. And I just, worked hard and learned more and more with each album and and really felt like I captured magic on a lot of songs here and there and I never felt like a some kind of overnight success kind of thing mm-hmm. it's always kind of been this just one foot in front of the other hard work new a new opportunity will come and 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 you know I've done a lot of looking back in the last like few years and mm-hmm. Uh, sort of self-reflection and just kind of realized how far I've come and and just kind of appreciated it in a way where when you're constantly working towards that, you're never where you want to be, right? Because you you always want to be working towards something, right? So um, I just had to sort of stop and, and take a lot of stock of like how far I've come. <laughs> well, and creatively, it must be hard. I I'm not a musician, so I don't know, but I feel like it must be hard to like spend a lot of time writing a song or thinking about a song, and then you go and you actually have your one day or, or one week or whatever to like capture it. It's got to be hard to not let that critic take over in in terms of being like, maybe we could do this better, or maybe I could do this one part better. Is that part of the learning over time? Do you think that getting better at it is is partially just being nicer to yourself in some ways? I actually, I do. I think it's a big part of it. I, th- I think I've learned to recognize more of the magic in, in what maybe at times I could have seen as like flaws. Yeah. I, but I also think it's been a thing where I just don't compromise anything anymore within where I'm trying to go and just kind of trusting my gut, you know? Yeah. 
And and I think at the end of the day, when you put art out there, it's there for people to digest and people are going to have different opinions of it. But I know that if I go through this process and I do everything I can to get it to where I'd like to get it, I don't leave any room to question myself, you know, because yeah. whatever anybody says with it, I'm just like, well, that is me. And that's the, 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 the all I can do is be me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the best me I can be. Do you have that same experience with a live show? Like, did you have a hard time, I, I guess, silencing the critic when you were on stage? Or was that a different experience? Because I know a lot of musicians feel that way. Like, it's it's a process to figure out how to just, like, let go and play a show. Uh, yeah, I think that was certainly a, a process. I mean, I've always kind of felt like a deer in the headlights on a stage to some extent, but I, I feel a lot more comfortable now. I, I never used to say much, you know, I was just kind of like, thank you so much for coming or hi, uh-huh. how are you tonight? You uh-huh. know, just kind yeah. of like little, like things like that. Keep it basic. Uh, yeah. But um, I've been opening up a bit more in the last however many years, but more and more, I it's like I, I'm definitely aware the audience is there and, and there is definitely like an energy exchange, but I um, kind of focus a little more on the musicians. And I hmm. feel like it's just kind of like just really listening to what everybody's doing and trying to get into that kind of, you know, groove together. And I just really focus on making the music the best it can be. I, I've never been somebody that kind of runs all over the stage. And I don't mean that if somebody is, that's like a negative thing, but it's just not so much me. I want to ask about your move to Austin because I've talked to a lot of artists about how the, wherever they are, sense of place kind of affects writing and performing and, and just music overall. You mentioned right at the very beginning that you would move to Austin. Um, did that change your approach to like writing or, or thinking about music? So what's that saying? I was like, at life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I find that I get really inspired in, in general by changing things up, you know, in my yeah. environment. So that was, you know, probably pretty inspiring in that sense. There's just so much music there. It's like everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I definitely started seeing a lot more live shows because everything goes through Austin. I mean, when I lived in Cincinnati, sometimes Columbus, Ohio got the show or Mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. Cleveland or, you know, it's a lot of bands like on a tour. You might have one Ohio date, but there's like four decent sized cities, you know. I mean, looking back now, I could say it would have a a huge influence, but it's also just been where I've spent at this point 13 years of my life. So it's just, I can't help but be influenced (laughs) by it, you know? I I just write from my life and my experiences, and a lot of it's half of my life's on the road too. So wherever I'm going to live or live, just whatever my experiences are or what sort of inspire my music. You've put out a lot of albums, and I think the last Heartless Bastards album was Restless Ones in 2015. And I know that you've talked about this Peruvian Amazon trip. Could you tell me a little bit about that experience and and why you went to the Amazon and how that all came together? Sure, yeah. I mean, I just, 
I just was kind of at a place in my life where I wasn't happy and I uh, had tried so many different things to sort of overcome that. And I was kind of having a lot of sort of blockages with that, you know, and uh, I tried therapy. I didn't drink. I was doing like lots of exercise, you know, I was just doing whatever I thought could help. And I definitely felt better, but it was, I realized, I mean, a lot of it was still there and I had heard about ayahuasca and I just kind of was at a point where even though the idea of trying it or going and having that experience was um, a little frightening, I think the idea of staying the same was more frightening to me. Mm. Did you know any like friends or anyone who had done that before? Or was it like you read about it? Because it seems like a big step. I had uh, maybe seen a doc or something here or there. And that's not really what stood out to me. But I had went to a friend's dinner gathering in Austin. And there there were probably about 10 of us. And it just so happened like it came up at the, the dinner gathering. And I, four people had tried it. And oh, then wow. they were kind of talking about their experiences and it kind of intrigued me more. I had also vowed to myself before the next album was going to come out when I had time that I wanted to go somewhere that was just not the, you know, like go to Europe or somewhere. I wanted to, I had originally thought like Vietnam or Thailand, just somewhere that wasn't uh, mainstream white culture, mm-hmm, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I had this window of time and I was like, where can I go with this time to? And there's a kind of a saying that it calls you. And Mm. uh, I guess it called me (laughs) just like popped into my head that that's what I needed to go do. And I, uh, I did a ton of research and, but I couldn't within the amount of notice and time that I had, I couldn't get into some of the spots that are the most reputable, but I also um, wanted to take great care with where I brought myself to. And, uh, but I had done some research that there are some, some good spots down there and I kind of took a chance and I went without booking a spot and there's, there's a special diet that you take before doing the medicine. And there's a couple of cafes in that town. And so I just, ate at the cafes and got there several days earlier. And I ended up meeting a group of people that had come from a retreat and had a really wonderful experience. And then they kind of directed me on where to go. So, wow. um, Yeah. And they happened to have a spot. So, um, wow. Can you just like, tell me about the experience mostly just because I'm curious. It's like, is it days, days long? Well, that retreat, uh, it was like four ceremonies. My first one was beautiful. I just, I cried. I thought, I just felt so much compassion for everybody in my life. Even Mm -hmm. people I'd had challenges with. It was almost like I was like, for somebody I'd had a challenge with, I was like kind of stepping outside of myself and almost looking at our interactions from their perspective. And it kind of would explain a lot to me. And then my second ceremony was really challenging and difficult. And I was kind of hesitant to do it again. (laughs) But we had a day off and then I decided I've come all the way here. I'm just going to go for it. And I had this huge breakthrough uh, on that third ceremony. It just felt like I let go of so much negativity in my life. And 
I don't, everybody's experience is different. So I don't know if I, I, but, but I will say for me, the first, after that first retreat, six months later is when I really started noticing things Wow! like, because I, I think then I took that experience and then I went back into my life and then I noticed different interactions I might have where I would have uh, challenges and it was almost like I was stepping outside of myself once again and looking at a perspective. And it just allowed me to kind of work through that, give me a little better understanding of somebody else and myself. Uh, really, it just it's compassion, you know, like when when you try to understand where somebody else is coming from. I think it's really about understanding each other. And I have continued to do the medicine. I do it about once a year. I go to, I found a place in Ecuador that I really like going to. And because I think I'm just continuing to sort of uncover things within myself and work on myself. And, and I find it to be a, a tool that's very helpful. I don't, uh, I don't want to rely on it necessarily mm-hmm. either, but mm-hmm. um, Yeah. And what did that do for you musically? Anything? I mean, in terms of creativity or writing of music, I mean, have you, did you notice any differences um, after you started going through that process? Well, I guess I I wrote my, my solo album, Sweet Unknown, or I called a solo album. I did it under my name. Uh, Yeah. And it just really flowed out of me. And right before that, for, for years, I had been really struggling with writer's block and I think I just like lowered any inhibition. It just kind of, it it removed the ego. I was kinder to myself in the process. If I have writer's block in the past, I was kind of hard on myself. And and then that only makes it harder, you know? Like, yeah. I think it's like a innate within me. I, I want to feel productive. And yeah. Yeah. in the writing process, you know, a lot of my writing is I'm just sitting there and pondering and how do I feel and what am I trying to say? And there's a lot of sort of self-exploration in that. And I think I just stopped judgment. I'd let whatever come out, you know? So it's it's been great. Yeah. That's really cool. Maybe the wanting to always be productive is a Midwestern thing. I feel like I feel like that too. Like, yeah, you think you it's know. just limited to the. I, th- I thought no, it was it's maybe like it's a, a human thing. I feel know? like it's American at least because, like, you know, people in other cultures are so good at just being like, you know, I'm not going to force myself to work like constantly. You know, I think like with like capitalism and I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a little bit out of control these days, and I just like. Uh, you know, massive amounts that rents climb up and every, you know, it's just like, it's so hard to just sit still. (laughs) (laughs) I think now that I've done a lot of inner work on myself, I'm like, how can I be of service to like others, you know? And, and I think a lot of that is just really kind of when I'm just really honest within myself and I allow myself to be vulnerable and, and songs that like people can maybe hear and identify with that. And, and uh, I, you know, it, maybe it helps them through something cause they realize they're not alone or. When you put out your, 
solo album, Sweet Unknown. Did that feel different? Because you had put out a bunch of albums. Um, was that like a different experience to have that out there? And, and how did that feel to have that album um, out into the world? Yeah, I mean, I think the band took a hiatus and then I just got really inspired. And um, I think for a while I had felt this pressure to kind of consistently keep everybody working. And um rather than just being inspired in a, in a moment and just sort of trying to force along the creativity. And then I think when everybody took a hiatus, I just, I didn't realize how much that was kind of affecting me. And it was something I kind of my own, I sort of psychologically put up upon myself. I don't, I think if I would have just been like, oh, okay, like maybe we should, you know, I need to, take this break. I need to do this. And people might go off and do other things and that's fine. You know, I think it was like a little bit self-imposed, you know, that perception upon myself. And, um, but I kind of went through this thing too, honestly, where not, not to go into politics stuff, but there was just like this time where, well, it's still that time where people are just you know, can be so divisive and, and, and mean to each other. And I was like, yeah. God, there's enough heartless bastards in the world. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, maybe like this name is really <laughs> negative. And I just kind of had second thoughts about the name, you know, like mm-hmm. I originally just thought it was really funny and it's kind of my sense of humor. You know, I used to walk down the street in Cincinnati in my neighborhood and somebody would yell out the window, you heartless bastard. And it would just like put like a big smile on my face. Like, <laughs> Yeah, a little bit different in the age of social media. Yeah, I think I just, I really kind of question the name and if I had, you know, if it somehow like perpetuates negativity in some way. And, and, and so when we took a hiatus, I was like, oh, well, maybe I should try this sort of different path and, and, you know, trying to a different band name or just my name. And, and now I kind of come around back around to like, you know, the name is always meant to be funny and mm-hmm. maybe it's a reminder for me to keep a good sense of humor uh, through it all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, to yeah. not like read too much into it and Yeah. well i want to ask you a little bit before we wrap up just about the kind of past i don't know seven eight months how how have you been spending your time in the covid quarantine period and how how have you found that to be creatively I feel like I've been doing my best to sort of look for the silver linings and the bright Mm -hmm. side of things through it all Uh, because so much of it's kind of beyond my control. Right. And, and at times I was just, I would have like a deep anxiety if I would start to worry about folks. I mean, I definitely have concern for, for people and, and, and businesses and, and, and things, but there is, was just, there's so much that is beyond my control. And I was like, I just need to focus on what I can do. And so I've just, I've actually had some days where I actually just felt happy. Like I was going for walks in nature and I, mm-hmm. I got a puppy and we're just like, I don't know. I was just kind of like, I think the other thing too, you're talking about like the Midwestern, like nature of kind of feeling the need to be productive. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I think like, because so much of what I do is a bit, 
I'm unable to do it right now. It's kind of beyond my control. Like, yeah, I've actually just allowed myself to be in a way yeah. that I never have before. And, and in that sense, that is a, a silver lining to that. And it's had me reevaluate a lot of things I want to do and where I'm going. And But I haven't been creating very much. And I really would have thought I would have just like churned out the songs with all this time. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. think I had just finished an album like March 5th. And then like, I feel like things shut down like a week later or something. And then I think I'm just pondering what my next message is. Like when I'm just figuring it out. Like I have hundreds of song ideas. Like the the real pondering, the real work for me comes with sort of honing in my message. That makes sense. I've talked to so many artists in the past, yeah, six months or whatever. And it's interesting how many people fall on along the spectrum of like, Some people are as creative as they've ever been. And some people, a lot of people I've talked to are kind of like along the lines of what you were saying. And and some people I've talked to haven't been able to be creative, maybe too, you know, too distracted or too like just caught up in in what's happening. But it's nice to be able to just say like, this is how it is and accept it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of, I've been working a lot, figuring out what's next and where to go. And, but I just need to be patient with myself. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I'm glad. My last question for you, because we've kept you for a long time, is if you, the Erica of today, had to give the Erica of 20 years ago any advice, what would you say? (laughs) Well, it'd probably kind of go right back with what I was just saying, like, be patient with yourself, you know? I mean, uh, I've always just kind of, I get kind of tunnel visioned and trying to work towards something. And it really, like, I think the patience allows just uh, to be a little bit more in the moment, you know, and listen to your own advice. (laughs) 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 You know, it's so funny that I feel like I, I will give people advice all the time. And sometimes I don't listen, I don't do my own advice. And that's been a thing where I, (laughs) I need to like step outside of myself I give myself some advice and actually listen to it. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for taking so much time to join us. And, and people who are listening should stick around for, uh, for some music. Thank you, Erica. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. And now here's Erica performing Could Be Happy, Dust, and Letting Go.
Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 